Al Evil to the right hand, puts Herb down. He's going to dump him hard to the ice. Brady Leopold just loves to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome My dream of being a professional hockey player became a reality, but it was all taken away from me in a very short period of time. For many years, hockey was my outlet. Hockey was my drug. When I had a stick in my hand, nothing else mattered. I was able to break into the Western Hockey League in 2004, and I even won the Swift Current Broncos Rookie of the Year. During the summer of my rookie year, I experimented with drugs for the first time. After just seven games in my sophomore season, I walked away from the Swift Current Broncos due to personal reasons. Nobody knew I had been sexually abused at the age of five. I did everything to hide it from everybody, but I just couldn't take it. Drugs and alcohol now took over my life. I did return to the Swift Current Broncos as a 19-year-old, but things were never the same. I was eventually traded to the Kelowna Rockets in my final year of junior where I got to play on a line with the Dallas Stars captain, Jamie Benn, and one of my best friends, the extremely talented Colin Long. It was by far my best season ever, and I even signed with the Tampa Bay Lightning's organization. A dream come true, right? That's when everything went wrong. First it was the cocaine, then came the Oxycontin, and that led me into a 12-year journey into the deepest pits of hell. Within two years, I had now made the switch to heroin, fentanyl, and everything in between, and I was now an intravenous drug user. Multiple suicide attempts and over five trips to the psych ward, I was a shadow of who I once was. By 2014, I was homeless on Hastings in Vancouver, the worst street in North America. By 2015, I was a wanted criminal, making the Crime Stopper headlines more than once. After spending three years in jail, I had completely given up. With nowhere to turn and nowhere to go, I finally started to get honest. I took a chance and made some major changes. This is my story. I overdosed over 10 times. I'm one of the lucky ones. And for that, I will always be grateful. This is for all the men and women we've lost. Matthew Lazinski, Mitch Fadden, this one's for you. My name's Brady Leibold, and I've been to hell and back. This is the road to recovery. What's going on? Welcome. Hockey to hell and back. Episode number 74. I'm Brady Liebold, a sick Brady Liebold, coming at you guys live from Muskoka, Ontario. Thank you so much. If you're joining us watching live, thank you so much. Hello to everybody out there. We're going to get real tonight. Who's ready to get real? If you're listening after the fact, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. If you have a second, take the time. If you can rate and review it, greatly appreciate it over here. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm ready. I've been thinking a lot about this stuff lately. A lot about not just my story, but just the power of addiction and how that relates to hockey 
how it relates to all of us and I guess how all of us are kind of affected by addiction at some point in time of our lives, either directly or indirectly. And uh, before we go any further, you guys know I always dedicate one of these episodes to a hockey player who's battled mental illness or addiction and lost their life because of it. And tonight is not one that I've talked about before, not one that I've posted. He's not on our clothing here at Puck Support yet. But he's somebody that I've always felt very close to in a very weird way. And I want to touch on that. But tonight's episode, if you can see it behind me, is in memory of Brian Spinner Spencer. Okay. And many people might not know who Brian Spencer is. Brian Spencer was also a former Swift Current Bronco. He played in the NHL. He had a very challenging life. When I was a kid... My dad collected movies, all sorts of movies, lots of hockey movies. In fact, he illegally taped them. That's right, Dad, I'm going to out you right here. Come after us all these years later. But I remember we had a movie called Gross Misconduct. And uh, it's a, I think it's a CBC movie that's done on Brian Spencer. And it, I think it came out in the early to mid 90s. And I remember watching it the first time and just being terrified. A kid not really understanding the story of Brian Spencer during his first NHL game it was supposed to be on Hockey Night in Canada, broadcast in his home province of BC and his dad, and it didn't end up being broadcast. And his dad went and he ended up uh, shooting up the, the TV station and he was fatally shot uh, when his son was supposed to be on Hockey Night in Canada for the first time. But long story short, Brian Spencer had a very challenging life and you know, he went to, he was up for some very serious charges. He had troubles with the law, troubles with drugs. And eventually his life was taken in a fatal kind of, from the reports that I've read and from my knowledge, in a drug deal kind of gone bad. Now, you could look at this story in one of two ways. I guess more than two ways, but in my mind, you can look at it in one of two ways. You can see Brian Spencer for the guy he was, the life that he lived right from the time he was born, throughout hockey, through all of his struggles. And he, and he passed away in such a bad state. Now you can judge him on that in the way that he left this world. You know, he was caught up in some bad stuff, in and out of jail, not doing very good stuff, and he lost his life. Now you can judge him and we could cast him to the side. We could forget about him. But in my mind, I watched that show as a kid and I continue to watch it numerous times, not knowing that I was going to be a Swift Current Bronco one day, not knowing that I was going to be in the situation that Brian Spencer was in more than once. And I made it out of it. So I've always been a fan of Brian Spinner Spencer, but I thought the right thing to do was to honor him because... Yeah, he lost his battle. Maybe in an, uh, not the greatest way. Maybe he wasn't up to, to very good things. Well, guess what? I wasn't either. Not too long ago. And, you know, if I would have died doing some of the things that I was doing, how would I have been remembered? So I made a judgment call here at Puck Support that we're going to honor and remember Brian Spinner Spencer for the guy, for the hockey player, for the person who he was, knowing that he never had the the chance to really fight those demons off. So tonight's episode 
It was a little bit long, but it means a lot to me personally. Ryan Spinner Spencer, former Swift Girl Bronco, Toronto Maple Leaf, Pittsburgh Penguin, New York Islander. Check out his story. Very cool. I need to blow my nose and have a sip of tea. So it's time to hear from Regan Bartell. Hi there, it's Regan Bartell, the play-by-play voice of the Kelowna Rockets, Brady Leopold's biggest fan. Team Issued is connecting all walks of life. Team Issued does this by recreating that special feeling of being a part of something bigger. A community for all striving towards the same goal. Teamissued.ca, promo code TOEDRAG15 for 15% off. Thank you to Regan Bartell, Jesse Paradise, everyone over there at Team Issued. I love Regan Bartell's voice. I could watch the old games of my days as a Kelowna Rocket, just listening to him calling those goals, regardless if I'm in them or not, just to to watch my old team. I've done it, and it's super exciting just to kind of reflect back on that. Um, but, yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. Check out Team Issued. Check them out on social media. And, guys, guess what we're going to do? We're going to give away a shirt tonight. We're going to give away... Can't really see it. One of these blue puck support shirts. Don't mind the wrinkles to roll them up to keep space. So stick around till the end of the show. We're going to give away a puck support shirt. Um, so, yeah, anyways, guys, I'm going to get right into it. So this morning I got a message from nobody in particular. I'm not going to name names asking if I had done a podcast on a show kind of touching on the impact of addiction on a, on a family, uh, on a family setting and, and what that may look, look like and kind of how it can affect, uh, the family setting. And, you know, from my experience, from a lot of the conversations I've had, a lot of families kind of hold that stuff in, right? It's like a deep, dark secret, uh, for the family. It's kind of embarrassing. And I think just for the individual, it's obviously embarrassing going through an addiction, but then all of a sudden to the family, I think parents feel like they're failures. Um, you know, we parents try to help and and they're not really getting through to them. They feel like failures they are like, well, if I can't help who the hell else can help, why would I start to tell anybody else about this? I'm their parent. If I can't help, what the hell? Right. Well, I'm going to get to that kind of later on in the episode, but that was kind of what sparked the idea for, the episode tonight. Like it was a fly by the seat of my pants thing as I often do. But I got that message this morning and I thought, Hey, you know, we can kind of tie this into a podcast. We can, we can touch on that. But I think there's like a lot of questions that I'm getting now too about my addiction and kind of like how that started. Right. And I know I've touched on this a little bit, but I thought I would get into more of the the nitty gritty about what my addiction really looked like from start to finish. Quick Coles Notes version with a couple stories that maybe some of you guys haven't heard before. Actually, I know that most of you guys haven't heard it because I haven't told too many people. Very few people listening or watching this will have heard the stories that I'll share. But um, I just want to say thank you to everybody again for the support before we move forward here. Uh, it continues to be overwhelming. Shout out to my people at True Hockey. They just sent me some new sticks and a box full of uh, swag I got beside me. I'll show off at the end maybe, but it's awesome. So make sure you guys check out their new stuff. Follow them on social media at True Temper Hockey. This episode is proudly brought to you by True Temper Hockey and Puck Support. We are going to be doing a collaboration very soon. So that's exciting. Stay tuned for that. 
We're going to do one more commercial and I'm going to get right into things here, guys. Stick around. I'm going to clear my throat and we're going to get after it. Hockey to Hell and Back is brought to you by Pride Tape. Pride Tape is a badge of support from teammates, coaches, parents, and pros to young LGBTQ players. It shows every player that they belong playing the sport they love and that we're all on the same team. Show your support for teammates, coaches, and fans in the LGBTQ community by wrapping your stick with Pride Tape. Every roll of tape will make an impact in sports and beyond. Inclusion starts with leadership. Check out some of the ideas of how you can get involved at youcanplayproject.org. Check out Pride Tape at pridetape.com. For more information, you can send an email to Aubrey at PrideTape.com. That's A-U-B-R-E-E, Aubrey at PrideTape.com. You can find PrideTape on Facebook.com slash PrideTape, on Twitter at PrideTape, and at PrideTape on Instagram. PrideTape thanks all of you for being champions for change. Thanks to our friends over there at PrideTape. Also check them out on social media at PrideTape. Now that we're through all of the sponsorships i will say too we have new opportunities we're gonna have new segments and stuff i kind of revamped the whole show so if you have uh, a company or something that you'd like to have advertised right here on this show you can reach out to me directly brady at pucksupport.com in case you guys don't follow me on social media or puck support on social media and you're not part of I guess the widespread hockey community, because I saw this everywhere, uh, especially in the last 24, 48 hours. Uh, Colin Wilson, former NHLer, coming forward with his story and about his addiction and, you know, primarily talking about cocaine and uh, sleeping pills and, and different things and, and mixing combinations. But, you know, the interesting thing that I took away from that story was that not too long ago, he came out with a story about how he's battled OCD mental illness for a very long time and it it took over his life and so a few months ago he shared that story and then the tragic passing of jimmy hayes his friend uh it comes forward that that he passes on and that fentanyl and, and different things were in his system cocaine and it kind of you know sparked colin's mind to say hey you know what like i'm not being fully honest here and he mentioned it in the article. Check it out from the Players' Tribune if you haven't read it. But he goes on to say in that article that, you know, at the time of the first one about the OCD, he felt that his addiction wasn't important. It wasn't an important part of his story. It wasn't going to be helpful. In fact, it was going to be harmful to his message surrounding OCD, mental illness, because the addiction will overshadow that. And... I completely get it. And he also said he was ashamed. I will highlight that point. The biggest part was that he was ashamed. So the stigma surrounding addiction is, is massive, right? It's, it's so, I mean, I never wanted to be an addict. I never thought I would be an addict. Uh, I never would have guessed in a million years. I've said it so many times on the show and I kind of want to take it to right there to get into some of the stories um, because I, I just really want to hammer home the fact that the way that I was brought up, the mentality that I had, the way that I was wired, though I was struggling, I had suffered trauma, I was hurting, I was looking for an escape all the time. Even though all of those things, I had high risk behaviors with 
whatever I was doing. I was still wired that I will never do drugs. It was so out of the realm of possibilities for me. I know I've said it lots. You know, you, you can ask a lot of people in my high school. A lot of them would say like at, back th- when we were graduating, there's no way, you know, me or some of my, the guys that I was hanging out with, hockey players, whatever, become addicts. And, you know, in fact, not just me, but more than one of us had have become that. And I can't tell you how ingrained it was to my brain that I do not do drugs. I am a hockey player. I am an athlete. I do not do drugs. In fact, if you do drugs, get the hell out of my life. This is my mentality from, you know, the time I was a kid until just before my 18th birthday when I tried that first hard drug. And when I say drugs, I have to be completely honest, you know, through that time, you know, yes, I tried experimenting with drinking and, and using uh, smoking pot and that, but that was it. Everything else was off limits. It was like a no-go zone for me. So how does that happen? Okay, so I've shared, again, I shared this story here and there, never really fully in this podcast, but I was at a music festival, Merritt Mountain Music Festival, and, uh, you know, I was hanging out with some people that were older than me, and I've been drinking and partying for days on end. It was like a camping music festival just after graduation. And, you know, these people that were older than me, they were all using ecstasy. And man, did it look like they were having the time of their life. And some of them played hockey. Some of them played junior hockey. Didn't seem like it was affecting them that bad. In fact, it seemed like it was enhancing everything and they were having such a great time. So... You know, slowly as this weekend went on or this week, because I was there for like six days, it started to look like more inviting and more inviting and more inviting until finally that day came where I was like, hey, man, to this guy, I'm not going to out him. He's now a firefighter, by the way. Um, I'm not going to out him. I said, hey, man, like he kept asking me, hey, man, do you want to do this? I'm like, no, 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 no. And then finally he's like, how about tonight? And I was like, yeah, like, let's do it. I was like, actually can't do it tonight, but tomorrow night. So here I gave him some money or whatever. And, uh, he ends up getting it. And lo and behold that day, um, my girlfriend at the time, she got sick. And so like Saturday morning came, I was set to do it that Saturday night and she got sick and she's like, Hey, I got, we got to go. Like I got food poisoning or something like I got to go. We got to go. But I had been up all night kind of drinking and whatever. And I said, I'm sorry, like I can't drive home. It was in Merritt. It's like a three hour drive home or two and a half, whatever. And she's like, whatever, I'll drive. She wasn't happy about it. But as we're pulling out, after I packed up my stuff, we're literally, the car is moving slowly. And all of a sudden I get a bang on the window, knock, 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 knock. And it's the guy that I gave the money to. He's like, where are you going? And he holds out his hand. He's got the, the pills of ecstasy right there in his hand. I'll never forget it. And I tell her, I'm like, stop the car. I get out. I was like, man, I'm leaving, you know, like she's not feeling very good. Man, whatever, take it. I actually took it right there and then got in the car and then drove home with this girl. That was the very first time I ever did ecstasy. I was by myself. I can't tell you why I did it, but over time, over that week, it started to look like it was more fun. More fun. It wasn't going to do any damage to me. It wasn't look like it was doing much damage to them, not knowing that it was going to spark a catastrophic set of events in my life because now I've 
smash down that barrier. Well, okay, now all of a sudden, okay, well, maybe I do ecstasy. Okay. So from that time point forward, you know, driving home, I started to feel really good. And, you know, I got home and I don't even think my dad knows this story, but I got home. My dad was watching uh, family videos and I got home and it was just a crazy experience. And I kind of wrote it out. But the next day I was seeking that feeling again, because all of a sudden, all of that, that pain, that trauma, those things I was trying to escape using hockey and, you know, at times drinking or high risk behaviors, whatever, anything but drugs, right? Now I was able to find that relief through ecstasy at the time. And from that day on, I think I did every day for three months. And fast forward, you know, you guys know how I went to Swift Current and I quit and I came back. Story for another day when I was playing for the Burnaby Express. And as soon as I got back from Swift Current, I got right back into the ecstasy. And then I started hanging out. Then Now all of a sudden I'm going to parties and people are snorting ecstasy. And I'm like, eh, oh, well, it's the same thing. I'm just snorting it. Well, what's the difference? So I started to snort ecstasy. Now all of a sudden people are doing, I'm starting to see Coke. I'm 18 at the time. Parties, cocaine starting to be a thing. And again, I kind of had that barrier up for that. And it was like, no, no, no. But it was way, my, my awareness towards it or my willingness to say no my guard was way down. And here I was, I was all of a sudden, I couldn't even believe that I'd made the change to, to doing ecstasy, snorting ecstasy. Now all of a sudden, I remember being in a bathroom with a couple of people and there's this girl and she was doing coke and she was a cute girl and whatever. And she's like, do you, want, do you want to do a line? And she was like this cute looking innocent thing, two years younger than me, 16, I think at the time. And I'm like, I'm like just 18. I'm like, the hell's going on here? Like I had missed all this, I guess, while I was playing hockey, but I guess now here it is. And lo and bold to me, sure, let's do it. And okay. Now all of a sudden, now I do ecstasy. Now I do cocaine. What the hell? And now don't you think it's harder to say no the next time? So that was how I first made the choice to do for me personally, to do those drugs, right? Not thinking at those, the time that ecstasy was going to lead to coke and that it, ecstasy was going to lead to abusing ecstasy, which was going to lead to coke, which was then going to lead to abusing both of them, getting them as much as I could as possible and everything else. So that's kind of how I broke the barrier for me. And it just kind of opened the floodgates because again, we have to highlight the fact that there's a reward for doing these substances. Otherwise, people wouldn't do them, right? There is a reward, but the risk and the consequences greatly outweigh that reward, especially in the long run. But at the time, right, especially a little education piece here, when you're looking at uppers such as ecstasy and cocaine, it works on a system in your brain with something called dopamine, which is the pleasure chemical. Anytime you're rewarded, you know, your, your brain fires out these chemicals and it feels good. Love, sex, food, um, all that kind of stuff. And so when you do drugs like ecstasy or cocaine or crystal meth, whatever, it heightens all of this tenfold. And instead of having to work for that reward, 
naturally or whatever, going out and having to do something to get rewarded. Now you just do it and your brain instantly rewards, rewards yourself. So even though it may be causing damage, even after long periods of time when you're severely addicted, even though you know it's just going to cause more damage, it's tricky because your brain is saying, hey, I want that reward. I want that reward. And when you stop using them, it kind of shuts down because you have a natural system in your brain to produce these chemicals. When you start to introduce these other substances, you're overloading your system with you know, outside chemicals. So your natural ability to produce these dopamine in your brain kind of shuts down. So then stopping these substances becomes even more tricky because now you feel like shit. Excuse my language. Kids show. Because now you're trying to get going and now you're just whole body. You have no energy, no desire to do anything. And we're talking uppers here. We're not talking opiates, the physical side. That's a whole nother story for later in the show maybe. But so I just want to touch, like there's rewards there, but the, the risks and the consequences, they, they're so high, especially in today's society when you have things with fentanyl. And, and I'll tell you guys out there, when it comes to drug dealers, not proud to say that I was one. I was one to support my habit on a very low level. I did whatever I had to do to support my habit. But I will tell you, drug dealers, even at the highest levels, which of some I you know, dealt with at different times, they do not give shit about anything but money, business. So the, the chance for cross-contamination is very high, is very high. And when you think you're getting one thing, you may be getting another, and that could be it. So I think it's very important to have these conversations with our kids, with our players, as coaches, everything. It might be hard to hear, but this is the reality of our life, and this is how quickly it can happen. Uh, party scene, young teenager feeling invincible, can't get touched, hey, it's not going to affect me, and, you know, Several individuals, just like these two, Nick and Jack Savage, just young, young boys. I won't even say men, young boys experimenting at a party. Two brothers passed away in the same night. I mean, it's just. This isn't stuff that you just see in the movies. This is stuff that happens every single day. I do want to just remind people watching. I know there's quite a few people watching. You could throw stuff up in the comments. If you have any questions for me, fire away. No holds bars. I won't get offended. If there's any questions you have for me about my addiction, hockey, anything, now's the time to ask. Throw them up in the comments, and I promise I will get to them. I wanted to share another story with you guys just to really allow you to kind of understand the circumstances and I have to be very careful about how I go about sharing this story and all of this stuff. I'm, I'm writing a book or I'm thinking about writing a book, I should say. There's very little done. And a lot of this will be more detail. But following my, my season with the Kelowna Rockets, which was my best season ever as a hockey player, I think on and off the ice mentally, I was... You know, fantastic, even though I had a lot of stuff going on. 
uh, with having a couple girls pregnant my last year of junior. Yes, if this is the first time you're watching this show, surprise. Um, it's something that I haven't talked too much about on the show, but I have addressed it. But it was a really good year. And you guys know I signed with the Tampa Bay Lightnings organization. Things were looking like, hey, pretty good, right? Something happened after um, that season that kind of was like a perfect storm. And I've never shared really anything about this. And it just kind of puts things into perspective. And sometimes I wonder why, like, okay, well, it's a perfect storm or this or that. But I truly believe that I'm in the position I'm in today for a reason. And everything that was put in front of me was, was to give me the experience to give me um, just not just knowledge, but just the capacity to feel um, and work through things and see different parts of the world, I guess, and, and see the different parts of the way that things work. But when I got home from Kelowna, I moved into a pretty unique uh, situation. And at the time, I just had my daughter, Brooklyn. Uh, I had her actually just two days before the playoffs started when I was in uh, Kelowna. And so she was just, you know, a few, she was maybe a month old when I was finally done in Kelowna because I went to Victoria for a few games and everything else. By the time I was done hockey, it was like mid-May. And the living situation, I'm not going to go into any details, but anybody that knows me knows where it was. And uh, the living situation was uh, not great. And there was two uh, active drug dealer, drug addicts very close to me. And in one particular occasion, uh, we were moving um, like a house. Uh, and everybody that was helping moving, um, three of them were drug dealers, uh, and the other guy was uh, a drug addict, and so I was the other one. And they were these were people that were very close to me at the time, and they all started to do coke, and you know they offered me a line, and you know I said yes. I should have said no, but I said yes. And so whatever, we moved the house, and now the next day, the guy who had given me the line or asked if I wanted the line or whatever. He was, I guess you would say he's the biggest drug dealer of all of all of them. And at the time, very close to me. This individual is no longer here, so I won't speak ill of him because I, I still own my own choices. I'm not blaming anybody, but I just want to share this story because it is, it's, it's just a very tough situation. And when I think about it, it's like, whoa. Um, so anyways, the next day, this guy, he, he just comes to where I'm living. Um, which was a very familiar spot for him. And uh, he just he just brings me some more Coke. And he's like, here, don't even worry about this. Here, just take this. I'm like, what? What the hell? Okay. And of course I did it, right? I'm on like developing into an addict at this time. And this is at the beginning of summer when I'm supposed to be training to go to like Tampa's camp and everything. And we he had like a close interest where he shouldn't have been doing this either, in my opinion. But... He brought it to me. He's like, don't worry about it. The next day, he brings it to me. Don't worry about it. Then he would just like leave it different places. He'd come into the house and say, there's a foosball table. He'd be like, hey, it's in the, the foosball table. He'd text me and be like, what? What? And it was just like consistent. It didn't matter. Like I didn't need money. Like this is how close this individual was to me. And I'll never under, like, I don't, I think I know why. And I'm going to save that for the book, why he did that. But every single day while I was trying to go to training, this individual was bringing me cocaine, like, and not just little bits, like a lot. He had access to it. Like he was a, you know, pretty into the 
drug dealing and that's how he made his living. And it was just like, here, here, here. And that's when, you know, and I remember going to like Tampa's prospect camp and I shared the story with Mitch Fadden, you know, I ran into him and, and, you know, I was like, Oh my God, what the hell have I been doing for the last month and a half? Like, Whoa, what the hell? And, uh, it continued. And, uh, the very first time I did an Oxycontin was from the same guy because I was like, man, I can't keep doing this. You can't keep bringing this. And, and there was times too when I started to ask for it after because it was like my mind became addicted to it. So there was times after that where I started to ask for it. But a lot of times you would just know, just bring it. Wouldn't you have to give money? Wouldn't you have to leave my house? It was crazy. Wasn't going to training. Wasn't doing anything. And then I'm like, man, I can't sleep. I can't do this anymore. So here, take one of these. It was an Oxy. That was the first time I did an oxy and I knew I was, knew I was mangled. But lucky for me at the time, I was like leaving to go to camp within like a few days of that. So I remember I did them for like three days in a row prior to my injury. I know I always say to everybody, yeah, I got hurt. I got prescribed pills. That was the first time that I did it. But the very first time I did oxy wasn't actually in a prescription. That is how it happened. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't really know what it was at the time. Uh, Oxycontin is basically synthetic heroin. I knew that these people, that he and other people were addicted to them, that they were physically dependent on them. But at the time I was like, man, I'm like, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what being become physically dependent on something meant at the time, but did it for three days, went away to camp and I was in horrible shape. And that's when I blew my knee out shortly into the season because I didn't train, I didn't do anything. And that's, you know, when I started to get the pills from the doctors and then start to realize that I could manipulate the doctors very easily and, and use multiple doctors and different things. And, um, the thing is, is like, nobody really knew. Um, I don't even think the trainers on my team really knew how bad it got because I started to go to other doctors and in, in, down in the States and Canada and wherever I could. And at the time there wasn't really a system in place to keep track of pills like they do now, like dispensing uh, prescriptions. So after that season, you know, I finished off the season in the East coast hockey league. I finished it off very well. Um, yes, I was addicted to the bills, but I came back. I, I trained so hard after my knee injury. I came back. I had like eight goals in the last like nine games or something like that. Um, and then I came home and that's when, um, my dad and, and that happened when, you know, I got dragged into the doctor and, and they're like, what the hell's going on? Like all these bottles and all these pills and all this stuff. And that's when my, the, the gig was up for me. Right. I felt at the time that I couldn't tell anybody. I was so embarrassed. I felt like I had to do it on my own. I felt like only I could do it on my own. I felt if I told anybody, I'd be, they would just be so ashamed. I'd be cast to the side. That is how I felt. And I think that's how a lot of addicts feel. So when the pills were gone, I tried to recoup myself. But though they were gone from the doctor, I thought, hey, I'm going to get clean. And I started to go through withdrawal really for the first time. And it was like, whoa, what the hell is going on here? Scared the hell out of me. I can't tell you how many times I've been in withdrawal, you guys. Oh, my goodness. It's so bad. But the first time, scared the hell out of me. It was like, nope, I can't stop. Not today. 
I'm going to keep doing it. So I ended up going back to Victoria and I was supposed to be clean. The pills were gone, but they weren't gone because I was getting them off the street. But I had actually been training hard that summer. Unbeknownst to anybody, I was doing pills still. They thought that I just kicked it miraculously, I guess. And I showed up to Victoria's camp and I was in horrible shape because I showed up there with zero pills thinking, hey, I'm at training camp. I'm going to sweat this out. Yep, absolutely not. Didn't even make it on the ice. Didn't even make it on the ice. Failed my physical. It was one of the lowest moments of my entire life because I felt so alone. And I knew why. Because I was an addict. I knew that it was on me that, and that I had to do this on my own. Like I did either ask for, I, I'll be honest, asking for help at that time wasn't even an option. It was like, I'm going to kill. I remember when they released me because I failed my physical. I said I had H1N1, which I'm going to show you guys a video here in a second. If you're listening to the audio, don't worry. It still has the same effect. But I said I had H1N1, but I knew that it was because I was in withdrawal and that I did not, I didn't know where to go, where to turn, who to call. It was the lowest moment in my life. It was really like one of the first times that I'd been caught at least in my life other than I think when I was like 16 or 15. And I knew it wasn't because I wasn't good enough. It was because I was a drug addict. And I was like, am I really a drug addict? I was scared. I was 21. It was like, what the hell? I didn't tell anybody. I went home and I got a, I got a job over in Holland playing hockey, pro hockey in Holland from a guy that I played with the year before in Victoria, Chris St. Jock, shout out Jocko, great guy. Brought me over there. They paid me good money, gave me everything. And But when I went home before going to Holland, I got back on the pills. So when I left the Vancouver airport, my dad took me to the airport. I remember, I'll never forget it. I had a little, you know, those lifesaver mints, those little circular things with the pop top and their little flat white ones. I had one of those cases and I took like eight Oxycontin 80s with me and my habit was anywhere from like six to 12 a day at the time. So I took eight with me, thought I would wean off very easily. Still, I'd never gone through a full withdrawal, only getting to one day and feeling like crap going, nope, can't do it. But here in my brain, I maybe I can do it in Holland. Let me tell you, when I was in Holland, it was the worst time of my entire life. And I don't say that lightly. I've been to a lot of shitty places. But I'll tell you, being in Holland by myself, showed up with eight pills by the second day they were gone and i was a disaster disaster i was there for about three and a half weeks i did not sleep a wink because i was in full withdrawal i did not tell anybody i told the team doctor i had h1n1 again over in holland i remember chugging jamaican rum i don't know why but i just just jamaican rum because I couldn't eat, I was throwing up, I couldn't sleep, I was withdrawing, I was everything by myself in this apartment. Wasn't going to practice, wasn't going to games, wasn't going to anything. I was like, ah, they gave me sleeping pills. I was eating all the sleeping pills, drinking, smoking weed. I was in Holland, right? Nothing was working, just gagging up the alcohol, trying to make myself feel better. It was the worst time of my life. I remember literally crawling back to my apartment because they started to make me skate going to practice. They called me Bambi because the first time I went on the ice, I couldn't even stand up. That's how weak my legs were. It was so bad. First game, I played like two shifts and I laid on the bench. I told Mark Peterson, shout out Mark Peterson. He played in the NHL, was the coach. I said, Petey, man, like I'm, I can't play, man. Like I got H1N1, I'm sick, but really I was withdrawing. Next game I scored. 
They don't ask how, they ask how many. It went off my shin pad on the power play. Only played like two shifts, same thing. Finally, I said, you know what? I'm done. I quit. I quit. Finally, I gave up. I, I, at this time, I had only done pills. I had never done heroin. I had never done anything. I had never done seeking out any other drugs. I wasn't looking for Coke. I wasn't looking at ecstasy. I just wanted to feel better. Going to the streets in Holland. Now, if I was, you know, or two years ago, I guess I should say, I would be, be, be able to fix myself like that because drugs are easy to find anywhere. But at the time, wasn't my mentality. So I was suffering, suffering, suffering alone. It was horrible, man. And all the while I knew my hockey career was dying because I was an addict and it was dying. And it was it was happening all alone. I flew home from Holland to my dad picked me up at the airport. I remember just shaking the whole thing. I should say that on the way there, I was so messed up that I slept drooling on myself for the entire plane ride from the tarmac to the tarmac. I woke up and I didn't, that was the flight on the way home. I couldn't sit still. My legs were moving. I just, it was the longest flight of my life. My dad picked me up, took me to where I was living. Within minutes, I had an oxy in my system and the whole cycle started again. Then it brings us to this point right here, thinking, hey, I got to get my hockey career back because I am, I, this can't happen. This can't happen. I'm going to beat this. I could do this. I should have just asked for help, but I just didn't know how. Then it takes us to this place. I go back to Victoria again, thinking that some miracle is going to happen and that this opiate addiction is just going to end for me. And here's a new story that they did upon my return. Just keep note when they say H1N1. And look at my face. You can tell that in this video, I'm in a pretty serious withdrawal. All right, plenty of hockey news and more. Here's Myra. Well, Hudson, let's hope that home ice is advantageous for the victorious Salmon Kings. An eight-game home stretch starts tonight with a three-game series against the Las Vegas Wranglers. Now, the Kings managed a mere two of a possible eight points on their recent road trip, and something has to give. So enter Brady Leibold. The gritty forward is back for another tour with the Kings and is here to mix things up on the ice a bit and hopefully get the fish heading in the right direction. Here's Jordan Cunningham with the story. We're the best team in this league, and I think we're going to make strides towards that. Bold statement from a guy joining a team with the worst record in the ECHL, but Brady Leibold is a believer. I mean, if you look at our roster, we, we have the best roster in the league, hands down, and uh, uh, hopefully I can just get in the lineup, shake things up a bit for the guys, and uh, just knock on some of their doors and maybe wake the team up a little bit. This is Leibold's second stint with the Salmon Kings. He ended last season as a key component, pulling top line and power play duties. He came to camp in the fall looking to pick up where he left off, but instead, the wheels fell off. I got sick in training camp and uh, failed my physical, so um, wasn't cleared, so they couldn't uh, let me go on the ice, so I went home. Not one, but two bouts with H1N1 left Leivold in the lurch. He then tried to find a fit with a team in Holland, but for him, 
the league was no Dutch treat. Uh, just not my style. A lot of diving and, and a lot of penalties. So slow. The game just whistles and no glass on some of the sides. Called Mark the second day I was there and was like, because he called me before and asked if I'd like to come back. And I said, I got to give it a sh- shot over there and did it. And the second day I was there, I called him and said, I got to get out of here. Brady's got some hands and uh, he brings uh, a little bit of scoring uh, power to our team. He's a kid that really wants to have a chance. So this is his chance. And a- All right, guys. So that's that video. And, you know, that, uh, to be honest with you, to, to watch my there and to just to know, um, you know, the, the state that I was in. And that was really when I my life was just falling apart. I was a young dad. Uh, I was trying to forge out my hockey career. I had the secrets from my childhood. I had a secret addiction to opiate uh, painkillers that nobody really took seriously um, because it wasn't really a thing back then, at least not in, in my circle, uh, in my family, in, in the hockey community, painkillers back. This was 2009, right? It was a thing. We just didn't hear about it until after. We started to hear about it more in 2011 and and these types of things. So, you know, by this time, you have to understand that in that video, you know, I was really, really, really sick and doing everything that I could to hang on to my hockey career. And I was having a hell of a time uh, keeping up with my drug habit. And it was starting to get expensive. I wasn't getting them from the doctors anymore. At the time, one pill was anywhere from, if you buy in bulk, I was paying, you know, on a low, low end, 18 to 20 bucks on a high end, 35 to $40 for one pill. And I needed at least five of them a day just to feel normal. Never mind if I had lots, I was doing up to 12 to 15 of them a day. And that's no joke. That's no joke. And now I'm playing in Victoria at the time and I'm from Vancouver. It's not very far. It's a ferry trip away or a a seaplane ride away or a helijet ride away. And because I started to get into this lifestyle and needing pills and getting them off the street, not the doctor, I started to meet people. And we had a local cocaine dealer for the team in Victoria. He happened to be our local weed dealer. Um, and he also had connections with other things. Um, and I had connections back home from people that I had known. So now, um, uh, I got a concussion. I was put on the IR for like 30 days too that year before being released. Cause I ended up getting released because of my addiction and everything, but not because of my addiction. Cause nobody knew. But I got put on the IR, the team was like traveling. And during this time, I was traveling back and forth and I was started to um, run drugs, primarily weed and cocaine back and forth from Vancouver to Victoria, making thousands of dollars each trip. And every single dollar made on that trip would just go to fund my pill habit just to stay normal, just so I could get through each day. And that's kind of where it all started. It was where the marginalized behavior for me kind of started. Well, that's not entirely true. Um, I did have a little stint when I was younger, um, just trying to fit in, be cool for a couple months when I had quit the Express there. Um, Thought I was a big shot, but I wasn't and found out very quickly. Um, But yeah, and like, it, it all happened so fast. It all happened so fast for me. And I think 
there were a lot of red flags early on for my family. Uh, obviously, like my dad coming to the doctor and seeing all these things. But at this time, everything had been normal. Once things fell apart for me and Victoria, my life fell apart very, 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 very quickly. Very, very quickly did it ever fall apart. I think we'll get into that here in a second. We got some comments. I just want to make a note on my paper so I know where to come back to. I appreciate the comments coming in. Judy Clark's watching. What's up, Judy? How are you? It was such a pleasure and honor to, to meet you at uh, Daniel Miner's Celebration of Life. Hello to you down there in the Lowbanks area. My guy, Brody. What's going on, Brody? Hello to you and Tara and Leo, 10 months old. Elaine, our friend, she says, your eyes say it all. What's up, Elaine? How are you? I appreciate your support big time. Good buddy, Stuart Smith. Hey, buddy. Love that you're so willing to share your story. Being open and honest will help so many others that are struggling. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Stuart. Love you, buddy. Troy Comer says, the biggest hindrance to get help was shame, guilt, and fear. The embarrassment seemed greater than the harm that alcohol was doing to my life. It is sick. It is a sick mindset to have. Looks like you experienced the same thing. What advice would you give young people with an addiction and are afraid to tell the truth and are asking for help? That's a great question. So much so that you get the horn. What advice do I have? My advice is this. The sooner that you're willing to get honest and allow other people to actually hear you, guide you, help you, all of these things support you. I mean, you don't have to suffer. I lived it. I know so many people who have lived it. And I know so many people who lived it and never made it out of it because they were never able to ask for the help or get the help that they needed, they deserved. Addiction is very common. That's not a good thing. Not a good thing at all. But it's very common. It's so common. So why are we all hiding it? Maybe not we all. I shouldn't say we all. I certainly am not hiding it anymore, but I tried my best. There's reasons why drug addicts will want to hide their addiction. The number one reason, in my experience, why a drug addict few reasons, but one of the main reasons is that by telling people, getting honest and saying exactly where you're at for the addicted mind means that, oh no, I might have to stop. Oh no, my, my, my resources might get cut off. And it becomes very hard to get past that addicted mind, the addicted mind. Because there's still that person in there. They have the good heart. They have everything. They want to get help. They want to stop. But their, their mind is so addicted. At least mine was. And my mind would be like, even though I was like, yeah, I got to stop. I got to stop. It was like this other person would take over me and say, nope, nope. If you do this, this is all going to be over. And I want to keep going. I want to keep burning my life down. And that's exactly what I did. I was never able to really stop. I got forced to stop on numerous occasions. I got thrown in jail. 
I mean, sure, you can still get stuff in there. But I mean, I didn't really have anywhere else to go. That was a power of addiction for me. And if people watching or listening to this in addiction or whatever, don't think that that can happen to you or, or someone else. Forget it. Addiction is a progressive disease. And like the stories that I shared tonight on tonight's show, like that was just the very beginning of my addiction. I never even got into the nitty gritty of some of the stuff that I did. And you know what? Maybe I will share one story uh, with you guys. Um, because that, that's really the beginning of the end. You know, I, yes, I went back and played hockey in the Central Hockey League uh, in 2011, 2012. But in between, when I got cut from Victoria after muling the drugs and all the stuff I just told you about back and forth, which I continued after I was off the team too, by the way. I would have the guy from Victoria fly in and we would fly. And oh, the stories that are going to be in my book are going to be insane. But there was a time period of time there when I got released from Victoria. I was like, what the hell am I going to do now? I legitimately wanted to kill myself. And that's when I started to, you know, really um, just stop caring about myself. Uh, my, my behavior became riskier because I thought life was not worth living anymore. I let people down, my kids, my family. Um, it was it was horrible. And so then I started to spend a lot of time in the psych wards. And that's when I went to rehab for the very first time. Um, I would love to know in the comments, like, are you guys enjoying this? I know there's a bunch of people watching, like 30 people watching live right now, I think. But like, is this a show that you guys are enjoying? If you're listening after the fact, shoot me a message. Let me know. If you guys like to hear these stories, you like to hear me jabber, I'm going to bring guests back on. Um, and we're going to, you know, hash it out through a, through a great conversation. Um, many of them to come. But I would be very curious. Do you guys like this? And also, we're coming up on an hour. I don't want to. I don't want to go too too long tonight. But I got a couple stories here. Now, do you guys want to hear about the the time that I robbed a taxi and the story of the robbing of the taxi? Throw it up in the comments. Do you want to hear? about the night that I collapsed through the shower curtain? Or do you want to hear about when I was on the most wanted and got out of jail using one of my best friend's names? And it, to this day, ruined one of the best friendships I ever had. So I'm going to th throw it over to two first star therapy. And, uh, Throw it up in the comments. What story do you want to hear? Most wanted, robbing the taxi, or collapsing through the shower curtain. And again, these are just like baby, these are like baby food stories to me. But they're very, um, just because they're serious, but the stories that I have locked away, they're actually kind of scary to think that that's the power of addiction. That's how scary addiction is. So, um, first our therapy, we'll be right back. One more story and we'll wrap the show up. 
Pocket of Hell and Back is brought to you by Performance Wellness. The collaboration between First Star Therapy and MindFrame brings a flexible, holistic program to athletes. The goal is to empower and enhance every athlete's well-being on and off the field of play through focus on intentful movement and mindful practices. You can contact them at consult at firststartherapy.com and team at mindframe.info. Plus, you can check them out on the web at firststartherapy.com and follow First Star on Instagram at firststar.therapy and at mindframe on Twitter plus mindframefit on Instagram. I love the comments coming in. Make sure you guys check out First Star Therapy, my guy James Gardner, uh, down there in Toronto, North York, to be exact. We got some great comments coming on on these stories. And, you know, I don't want to laugh at these stories, but I kind of have to laugh at some of them now. Some of the stuff that I've done, I'm seriously not proud of. You guys have to understand. But I share them in, in entire honesty because I think there's there's strength in sharing that story um, just to show the power of addiction. And, and like, I... I really, truly believe that like, if it can happen to me, it can happen to anybody. And on the other side of that, if I can get out of it, so can anybody else. Um, Randy, my guy from the Hemi Pro Shop, he wants to hear, let's hear bailing with alias name. And, you know, this is, again, this is, this is a story I haven't shared. I'm not going to use the guy's name because I haven't talked to this guy in a number of years. And uh, him and I were very close. In fact, our families were very close. He came to Swift Current to see me play hockey. His dad came to Swift Current to see me play hockey. Very, very close family friend, known him since I was very little, hence why I was able to use um, his name. So when I was in uh, Vancouver, when I was homeless, uh, between Vancouver and Surrey, uh, I started to you know, do things. It took me a while uh, to get there, but just like anything, you you start to hang around with with people, you things start to look, you know, a little easier to do, or a little more fun, or a little maybe not as bad, um, because hey, everybody else is doing it. Sort of the same thing I was talking about with the ecstasy and coke earlier, right? And so now all of a sudden I'm homeless on Hastings, which is just chaos, very sad place, um, very full of just addicted people, crime, um, just very sad. Again, I say it all the time: if you don't know what I'm talking about, go Google it, Hastings Street, Vancouver. Now, I'm homeless. I got nowhere to go. I'm living. I didn't even have a tent to sleep in most nights. You guys have to understand that I wasn't sleeping. I was about 160 pounds. I'm now 215. I was dying. I was, I was not doing well. Um, I primarily um, uh, supported my habit by selling drugs on the street at a very, very, very low level. Um, just enough. And I would usually do more than I was making and have to do figure something else out. Well, Long, the long and the short of it is I got caught for that and I got caught for a lot of other things as well. But because I had no previous criminal record, you know, that they had no real reason to hold me. I, they weren't at the time very serious charges. Um, the, the taxi thing hadn't come up yet. Um, although it had happened, it hadn't come forth to the court yet. Um, but I started to rack up all these charges and they kept, you know, they gave me, they let me out on a promise to appear. Then they let me out on like another one. And then they let me out on bail. So I got caught for like multiple things and they kept letting me out, letting me out, letting me out. Now I got caught again, fourth time for something a little more serious. And I'll never forget because I remember doing it. I am not going to sit here and lie to you guys and say I didn't do this stuff. I did it and I remember, but I also remember the state that I was in 
while I did it. I just remember being that addicted brain, being so addicted to fentanyl. My habit at that time was $500 to $1,000 a day. No joke. No BS. And if you don't believe me, it doesn't take very much to, to spend $500,000 on, on drugs in a day. Trust me. Um, anyways, I finally did something. I got caught and I knew they're like, I knew at the time that like, I'm not getting out again. There's no way I'm getting out. So when I got arrested, they asked me my name. I used my friend's name and, uh, he had no criminal record. Um, so they let me go on a promise to appear under his name, not knowing it was me. And Shortly thereafter, like a couple of days, there was a most wanted, uh, which I think I there's a picture actually, which I shared in the episode. I'll throw it up quick. That picture there on the right is a mugshot Metro Vancouver Crime Stoppers. You can see it was on the most wanted of, it says I'm five foot eight, 160 pounds. I was like 5'10", 160 pounds at the time when they got me. I think I was actually bending down because I was so, I couldn't even stand up straight, but that was in the newspaper. I was everywhere for the most wanted. And um, I remember my auntie Lee like saw it on crime stoppers at night. Like it could, you could never believe. I remember watching that stuff as a kid being scared of those people. Now I was on it. And so now I'm on the run and I'm on bail because the taxi thing came out. So now all those times they let me out. Now they want me because they got me for something else. But now I'm also out under this guy's name. Now I get caught again for something else. And I know I can't use my name. So I use this guy's name again. And um, they took me to court this time. They didn't give me a promise to appear. They didn't just let me out there because I already, he now technically on paper had a prior charge from a week before, two weeks before, whatever. And um, I remember like using his name and just thinking like, there's no way I can go to jail. Like I was going to go to jail for a long time. I was scared to go to jail. Um, I was scared to be sick in jail. Uh, I was so scared. I didn't know what to do. I panicked and I used his name again. And um, I ended up spending three days in, in city cells jail that day, that time, like in just in the jail house. Um, Cause it was a weekend. And on the Monday morning I went in front of a judge um, and appeared as this individual got fingerprints as this individual and got released um, as this individual while I was on the most wanted. The very, very unfortunate part about this story is that my friend, my dear friend, who is one of the greatest individuals I've ever had in my life and his family, they were like family, I loved dearly, took me in when I was had nowhere to go multiple times, known in my whole life. But I knew his mom's maiden name, his brother's name, his birthday, his brother's birthday. Like, that's how close they were. Well, they were away on vacation. And when he came home through customs, he had a warrant out for his arrest because, you know, I didn't show up to court or whatever under his name. And, you know, he ended up getting arrested. And very shortly, they, they sorted it out from my understanding. But, um, yeah, I ended up... Uh, losing uh, one of my best friends over that. And that, you know, it seems silly. Um, certainly wasn't my intention. I thought it was harmless at the time. Not thinking it was going to cause a huge problem, but certainly a selfish thing to do. Um, that's the power of addiction. Anything to keep going. Anything to keep that addiction going. As much as we want to stop in our hearts, 
the addicted brain does crazy things to keep that addiction going. To the individual that I did that to, I'm sorry, I love you. I don't know if we'll ever mend that relationship. That's a moment I'm not proud of. I own it. I ended up getting caught for it. I pled guilty to it. I got charged with impersonation and all of that stuff. And I had to own it. My parents had to listen to it in court and all of that stuff. But that's the power of addiction. Not an excuse. I own it. But that's the power of addiction. While I was on the most wanted, I got out of it. Carson Grant watching. What's up, buddy? Love you too, man. I got uh, I got tons of stories, stories for days, but we're not gonna we're not gonna keep them all going tonight. Cole's on watching out there. Cole, thanks for the opportunity for sharing my story with your players, trusting me with that space. Keep up the great work, Brady. Your stories are very beneficial in helping anyone listening to us, watching, getting through any mental health illness and or addiction. What's up, Cole? Thanks, buddy. Dean Smeal says, Brady, you tell your story. You helped so many people, buddy. I'm proud of you and happy to call you my friend. Top bunk. Ditto, buddy. Right back at you. As I wrap this show up, sorry, I don't know if I'll get to all the comments there, but as I wrap this show up, I want to come back to the point that I touched on earlier in the show about talking openly about addiction. It's very important. It's very important, in my opinion. I'm not a doctor, okay? I am not a doctor. I think we all know that. But my opinion, through my experience, through people that I've seen and all that stuff, like I always say, is that talk about it. Not just you as an addict if you're struggling with addiction. Anybody dealing with somebody who is going through an addiction, talk about it. To them, to others, because just like individuals like myself, like I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't figure it out on my own. Well, guess what? That's usually the same for people who are trying to support somebody with an addiction. They need support too. I know my dad sure did. I pushed him to the to absolute hell. Need money, need money, need money. Being kidnapped, being tortured, this, that. Psych words, jail. For a long time, my dad was doing it on his own too. He was hiding my addiction from those closest to him. He was hiding the money he was giving to me. I know it. Till finally he couldn't do it anymore. And it was like, hey, not only did he have to cut me out, he actually had to go get help for himself. Start to talk these issues out because he had an issue maybe saying no to me or whatever. So like, it's not just the person who's struggling with the addiction. It's the community around them as well. You're not just limiting the person who's struggling with the addiction's chances. You're limiting your chances of helping to actually support that person through the other side. It's one thing to keep somebody going and up and running, but 
to see them through the other side. Sometimes we need help. Sometimes we need advice. Sometimes we need support. It's okay to not be able to do it on your own. If you're in addiction, it's okay to not be able to do it on your own to try to help somebody. Tell people about it. You'd be surprised at how many people have gone through something similar and may have that piece of advice or that person or that treatment center or that whatever that you have never heard of. That might be the answer. Don't limit the chances for anybody, especially if you care and love about them, to get the help that they need and deserve. I just wanted to circle back to that because I got a message this morning from somebody who has somebody close to them struggling with a fentanyl addiction. And it's a dark secret in their family. It's not a proud moment. I know that. It's not easy to talk about. Guess what? It's even harder to deal with this shit on your own. If the person you love doesn't want to get help, do your best to equip yourself with the tools to actually help them and help yourselves move forward. My dad fed into my bullshit for so long, trusted what wanted to trust what I was saying, all this stuff. And it was just lie after lie after lie. When he started to tell people about what was going on, the habits, the this, the that, even though he maybe knew it in his heart and all that stuff, he didn't want to believe it because it was his son and this and that. But people started to be like, hey, Brian, like, wake up. Sorry, dad, I'm using you as an example, but get used to it. We're going to use our story to help people. I love you. Oh, Lena Ramponi joins the show. What is going on, Lena? Shout out to you guys. I think you guys moved. I don't know if you're still in Kelowna, but Lena was my billet while I played for the Kelowna Rockets. <laughs> Lena and Dom. Ramponi from the Ramponi Farm. I think you guys sold it. I love you guys so much. You guys were so great to me. My time in Kelowna was just phenomenal, and you guys were a big part of that. You guys were so good to me um, with the stuff that I was going through, with the pregnancies and stuff, not normal stuff for a junior hockey player. You guys were so great to me. I would love to see you guys all again very soon, and I'll never forget that night. If Dom, if you're listening, if you're watching, you took me and Dylan Hood out for dinner. There's that place in Kelowna. I'm not sure if it's still there, but this restaurant, just a small little place kind of hidden hidden in the outskirts kind of downtown and man it was phenomenal dom took us on the tour of Kelowna. his family is one of the earliest settlers in Kelowna. so much story there the pictures in their house the tobacco old tobacco fields the fruit farm all that stuff i love you guys thank you for watching hello to all the ramponies mike lenny cynthia you guys are an unbelievable family. You're in Kelowna. I'm coming through there. You got to make... Can you make me some of that pasta? It looks like rice, but it's not rice. You fooled me with that. I was like, man. I was like, oh, we got rice. It was like the first pregame meal. And it was this... They're Italians. Great Italian family. Great food. Unbelievable food. Oh, 
a little off topic for tonight, but I had to share. Looks like rice. I forget what it's called. And also, shout out sugar-covered almonds at Christmas. Orzo, done. She's got it. I was so fortunate to have such great billets. So grateful for the experiences that I've had, the good ones, the bad ones. And uh, now I just continue to share my story. Thank you for watching live. I love all you guys. Your support means so much to me. Thank you for bearing with me while I've been sick tonight. Oh, you know what? We're going to give away a shirt. I almost forgot. I almost forgot. I don't know how we're going to do this. Don't worry. There's other sizes. It doesn't have to be this little small one. So here we go. Um, we'll do it right in the chat. We'll make it nice and easy. Uh what was the first number that I wore in Swift Current? Anybody know? What was the first? Oh, that's going to be too hard. No one will know. No one will know. Cancel that. Cancel that. Nobody will Nobody will get that because I only wore it one game if we want to get real. What number did I wear for the Kelowna Rockets? Super easy. Throw in the chat right now. First one in the comments. What number did I wear for the Clone Rockets? You're going to win this blue puck support shirt. Compliments of puck support. Throw it in the chat. What number was I as a Clone Rocket? I hope some of what I made sense. What I said made sense. Dean, you were close. 20. That was Swift Current. Will McIntyre. He always wins. Oh, Donna's in there too. Donna, I got one for you too, Donna. Susan, 10, 25. It's 25. 25 in Kelowna. It's right here. Although you guys did say... 10 and 20. So I guess you guys are all kind of right. Will McIntyre, you're our winner, buddy. Anyways, that's it. Sorry about the camera work. One man band. All these shirts too, by the way, are on sale. They're $10 off right now. There's uh, a few... Uh, Orange ones, blue ones, couple purple ones left, and some sea green ones that are really nice. 20 bucks a shirt right now, pucksupport.com. If you want to get one, check it out. We got all sorts of stuff. We also have these new shirts. Pain is real, but so is hope. Your damn rights it is. Check it out, pucksupport.com. Forty-five. <laughs> uh, Donna, I love you. You're a warrior. Hey, listen. If you can, uh, if you can share this with your friends. Tell if you like the show. If you think we're onto something here, uh, share it with your friends. Also, if you want me uh, to come in and talk to uh, your hockey team junior hockey team, minor hockey team, um, let me know. Shoot me an email, brady at pucksupport.com. Find me on social media, whatever. Either come in person, do it in Zoom. 
or on Zoom, sorry. I got a couple lined up. I'm doing one for um, the Detloff family down there in Michigan. Their son, Brennan, tragically lost his life this year. Took his own life. And uh, I get to talk with Brennan's old team and his brother's current team, which is just, I wish I didn't have to do it, but I'm, it's a, just an honor to that Brian Detloff, Brennan Detloff's dad reached out to me. So I'm doing that. That's incredible. I'm, I'm just humbled and hopefully we can get, get in there and make a difference. Um, going to go down and, and spend some time in, in Lucan and spend some time in Dunville. But this is my, honestly, this is my passion. I think I have a long ways to go. I want to hone in on these skills, do some public speaking, whatever it looks like to get better at it, figure out what stories I need to tell to get through. But that's my passion. If you think that this can make a difference, even at schools, anything, I'm, I'm there. I'm your guy. Anyways, take care. Be kind. We'll be back again soon with some more episodes, more guests. Be kind. Be grateful. Have a great day. If you so choose. I'm grateful. Oh yeah. Able. Oh yeah. I'm stable. Oh yeah. No label. Oh yeah. You know me. I have only a path. I'm lonely. But damn, I'm going. I don't want no fake love. I want the real stuff. Everybody listen up. Cause I'll only say it once. I'm gonna show you all the path. If you want it bad, I'm gonna show you every side. Yeah, how you can get it back. Yeah, cause I ain't never done. I'll be number one. Working hella hard until I get just what I want. Yeah, rise just like the sun. Yeah, fatal like a gun. Shooters gonna shoot and I'm gonna shoot until I fall. Yeah, do it alone. So I gotta get through it. And the only thing I know is to love what I'm doing. Never give up, never slow till I finally prove it. Never listen to the no's, I just wanna keep moving. Yeah, I put out all the start, it's my only medicine. Yeah, everything I do, I'm just being genuine. Yeah, I'm sick of being screwed, feel my own adrenaline. Yeah, I do just what I do, and I hope you let me in, let me in, yeah. Oh yeah, able, oh yeah, I'm stable, oh yeah, no label, oh yeah, you know me, I have only a path, I'm lonely, but damn, I'm going to win, yeah.